All right, hey, we're a little bit after uh, six, so we'll go ahead and get uh, started. Welcome, guys, to our third week and second lesson of our uh, book in Leadership Institute. This book is titled, hey, Bill, this book is uh, titled The Mission, and it's one of four books in the series, the leadership series, put out by the Center for uh, Church-Based Training. The other three are The Leader and the church, and the word. So we pick this one not because they're in any particular order or have to be done in a particular order. They don't. And so we picked this one, as I said, uh, the first week because uh, Ed Martin needed to finish one book, and it was this one. So we're doing this one first for you guys. Yeah, this is, uh, we got some uh, cold pizza here from this afternoon. And uh, we'll be on page 17 of issue number two. And the first issue... In of 12, dealing, dealing with this uh, one overarching issue of the mission of the church. The first issue dealt with God's reign and how it's God's objective to an intention to reign over all his uh, creation. And all of the now next 11 lessons are all going to deal with that same issue of, of the mission of the church as it relates to uh, God ruling over his creation. So this next issue, the one we did this past week, is on Christ's mission and how that relates to uh, God's reign and the accomplishment of God's plan to reign. And in each of these issues, you've got the six sections. So we encourage you each week to do the uh, first, the first of four. And then when we come together, like on page 17, we'll discuss the issue together. So uh, as you had time, hopefully you were able to look at the uh, case studies and then uh, study the uh, scripture together, then consult other sources, a couple of articles, then form a brief response to what it is you learned from scripture and the, uh, and the articles, and then we discuss it together. So we'll hit these eight discussion questions together momentarily, uh, but we're just a few weeks into it. Uh, let me just encourage you guys to uh, stay, stay with the whole series, really, if you can, over the next uh, couple of years together. Uh, I know things come up with schedules and all of that, and some of you may be wondering, actually nobody's asked me this, but somebody, some of you may be wondering, uh, how does this help me to be a leader? Uh, well, one of the books, 12 issues in that book, is devoted to that specific issue. It's called The Leader, so we'll get to that in due course. But... Uh, having an understanding of uh, our mission, the church's mission, of which you are a part, having an understanding of how the church itself is to function, uh, and then looking at what it means to be a leader. All of those are related to each other uh, because we're going to see that the church is central to carrying out the mission. So having an understanding of the mission, having an understanding of the church and the church's role in the mission, and then how it is we can be a leader, yes, in the church, but the principles on being a leader in the church will apply to leadership in other areas as well. So they, there is a logic to it. They do all fit together, okay? So I just encourage you to stay with it. And as we sort of uh, slog through sometimes uh, some of the doctrinal stuff and all of that, it may not appear uh, that it's directly applicable to you. Uh, overall, if you'll stay with it, I think you'll find that it is, okay? So page 17 then in issue number two. On this issue of Christ's mission, what did he do to accomplish God's plan? Think about the uh, case studies in step one. 
How do the stories about Gail and Hector reveal the presence of forces in the world which are opposed to God and his rule? So you remember Gail, and uh, Gail is uh, having coffee with a friend, and uh, the friend is a Christian, uh, has tried to talk to her and has talked to her about her faith, has invited her to church a few times. Uh, Gail has seemed fairly warm to that, but then all of a sudden she reacts kind of violently to the suggestion that... uh, this Christian friend prays and that God hears her prayers and even, even answers. So then she gives a litany of things that she's prayed about that all went south, you know, for, right? So that's what that one is. And then Hector, you know, Hector's got this issue of uh, having, lost his, uh, having lost his employment, his, his farm, a uh, couple of bad harvests, and he's living in an area where somebody wants to buy his land to... Uh, for the cocaine uh, trade, and uh, this guy's riding in a Cadillac, and here's uh, Hector uh, trying to make ends meet. His daughter's got some uh, physical ailments. He's got to pay for a prescription uh, for his daughter that are very expensive. So he's faced with this dilemma of trying to make ends meet, but trying to do so in, a, in, an, in an honest way. So how do those, then, two stories reveal the presence of forces in the world that are opposed to God and his rule. What did you guys come up with for that? They blame him for everything. Uh, he, uh, never around when I need him to fix this mess I'm in. Uh-huh. Uh, it's all God's fault. Hmm. And uh, the rest of it I have um, forgiven and ever-changing. <laughs> and they're lost and helpless and rebellious. <laughs> So one of the things you see in the story is, and especially with Gail, I mean, she's, she's angry, right? Slams, slams it down, has these complaints against God. So blaming God uh, about uh, what's going on in her life. So how does that reveal, though, forces in the world that are opposed to God? Well, there's a sense in which it does. Because notice she's putting a particular interpretation on things. Why is she putting that particular interpretation on what's happened to her, a negative interpretation, one that is, uh, one that is accusatory toward God. Uh, so that in itself, when you see that, when you see that in yourself, when you see that in others, that is an example of how the world has gone in a wrong direction because of sin, because we have a distorted view of God. And Gail has a distorted view of God, and it's coming out now, in what she says. So, Aaron, you're, you're on to something there. When she's blaming God, that is an evidence <clears throat> that there are these forces in the world which are opposed to God, and it's affected then people who are enslaved to those forces and have this distorted view of God. So that's, that's one. What, anything else you guys came up with? I think you put it well, uh, Dave, when you said if you focus on the one particular thing, uh, that's the key, is to see the larger picture. 
and to understand that even as you try to step back and see a larger picture, it's impossible, now get this, it's impossible for you to see the largest picture. There's only one being in the universe who sees the whole picture. <laughs> and not just the whole picture at a point in time, but the whole picture as it relates to what's come before and what will come after. And you can't do that. Only God can do that. So that's why Jonathan Edwards uh, said that he understands God's sovereignty uh, and the problem of evil. Why do evil things happen, like Dave brought up? He understands it this way, that God has the ability to look at two lens, through two lenses. He's got a narrow lens, and he's got the broad lens. And he can look at every event through both of them. So when God looks at a particular event that is bad, someone, someone dies, some, some tragedy, something like that, through the narrow lens, just that particular thing, isolated from everything else, God can declare that thing bad and, and a result of evil. He can call it that. And yet, God has the widest possible look at that and how it fits into everything else. So he's able to look at the same event through the broad lens, and he is able to bring good out of even that tragic event. So that's a good, I think, it's been helpful to me, a good way for us to to think about it. But if we just look at it at the, in the narrow, and, and remember, that's really the only lens we've got, <laughs> is the narrow lens. Unless God provides a wider one for us. So where's God provided a wider? Again, not the widest, only he has the widest. But where's he provided a wider lens for us? It's in scripture, right? Otherwise, I'm just stuck looking at this. And that's where Gail is. So, so Gail is left to her own narrow view of what's going on. And because of sin and, and, and not having a relationship with God, she's inclined to then uh, blame God because she has a distorted view of God. Good. What else did you guys come up with? Yes, sir. That's, man, that's good, good thinking. So, uh, Gail, though, think about this. Gail's not in control of all this stuff she's complaining about. Hector's not either. But her complaint is, well, supposedly God is in control. That's why I prayed to him. <laughs> and he didn't come through. So, yeah, I'm not in control, but supposedly you are, but maybe not since I prayed to you and you didn't do anything. 
Now, notice what she's doing, though. She's making a judgment about God because he didn't respond the way she wanted when she wanted. So, yes, she can't control, but she's also then made a judgment about God that he must not be in control because he didn't do what I wanted when, when I wanted it, which in effect means she wants to be in control. Think about it. Prayer becomes a tool to be in control. If I can tell God what to do and he does it, then he becomes my waiter. I say, you know, hey, bring me some more of that, okay? And that's what people think prayer is. And, of course, it's not because there's never a time when creatures are to be in control of, of what God does. So, Carl, you're, you know, you're right. There's all these things we can't control, but from her false perspective not enlightened by Scripture, not enlightened by the Holy Spirit, because she's not, she's not a Christian. So she's looking at it just in this natural way that most people do then. And even, even Christians can forget you know, what God's told us in, in Scripture. So from a Christian standpoint, that's the way Gail's looking at it. From a Christian standpoint, what we ought to do is we ought to, we ought to repair to go to what we know to be true, and then entrust to God the things that we don't know. And there's a bunch of stuff we just don't know because we don't have that wider lens. So, well, so one of my favorite passages with this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. I think I might have alluded to it last week, two weeks ago when we were talking about decision-making in the will of God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But it speaks of kind of what Carl was getting at. You know, there's a bunch of stuff I can't control, but I've got some things I know. I know Christ, I know the cross, I know Scripture, and I can depend on those. And indeed, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that. The secret things belong to the Lord. That's what it says. That's the stuff I don't know. Not only can I control it, I don't even know about it. The secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And, and really, I don't even know particularly why what happened today happened. <laughs> or yesterday. So there's a bunch of stuff I don't know. The secret things belong to the one who has the widest lens. But these commands are given to you and to your children and to your children's children that we may obey them. So God has things that are part of his own counsel and for his own purposes that are all for the good reasons that he tells us in Scripture, but we just don't know why a particular thing happens at a particular time. I can't know that. So what I do have is what he's given me in Scripture. Good. What else? About these stories reveal the presence of forces in the world opposed to God. Well, think about this for a minute. Think about the elements in those two stories that are the result of evil. What elements in those two stories would not be present if there was not evil? Okay. So death. Okay. Okay. So uh, that's that's so uh, idolatry. That's what I'll call it, <laughs> because you replace God with something else. That's what that is. So uh, death, idolatry. Um. Okay. 
So really self-worship rather than God-worship, self-centered rather than God-centered. Do you see that in those stories? Okay. You know, what about Hector? You know, you got uh, Hector, and then there's Carlos. It was Carlos, right? <laughs> Carlos has got the Cadillac. That guy really wrote. I thought those articles were really well written myself. Yeah, you because know, I could just you could just see the Cadillac pulling up, the dude in the back rolling the thing down, right? <laughs> Everything, yeah. So I thought it was well written, you know. And uh, so Carlos, you know, pulls up and says, "Hey, I know the bank's coming after you. Why don't you let me help you? We're friends, aren't we?" So I'll buy your property, but he's going to use it for cocaine. So Hector's got this great you know, dilemma. But think about Carlos. How does Carlos represent one of these forces in the world opposed to God? I mean, here's Carlos being used as a tool of Satan. He's being used as a tool of Satan to tempt Hector. So that's another one. Call that whatever you want, temptation. Just, you know, the existence. Yeah, and and people being used as emissaries by Satan. I mean, that's what's happening with Carlos here. You know, he doesn't even he doesn't know it. He probably never thinks about Satan. He probably doesn't think about. But he's being used as a tool of Satan for Satan's ends in the life of in the life of Hector. So this battle is going on all the time. That's what that question's designed to get us to see. That this battle is going on all around us all the time in a myriad of ways, big and small. And we think of spiritual battle as this you know, cosmic you know, battle going on behind the scenes. But it, the, the, the place where it occurs is here. <laughs> and it's in your life and in your circumstances and on planet Earth. And that's where the attention is focused. Why? Let me just ask. We'll move on to the second question. Why is the attention focused here? Because this is where God's image bearers are. This is where humanity is. And the battle is for the hearts and minds of humanity. You know, Satan is, has and, and want, wants to keep the allegiance of God's image bearers. He wants to take what belongs to God, and he wants that worship to be rendered to him. So it's focused here because this is where those image bearers are. This is where humanity is. So this is where the action is. It's not, you know, some cosmic thing. It's in your everyday life. It's in the down and dirty of uh, regular living. All right, look at number two. Describe the state of humanity apart from Christ and the state of humanity in Christ. So, unsaved and saved. First, those are apart from Christ. Yes, sir.
Well, if you take the things that uh, Mark was recounting from Romans 1, Romans 3, uh, just, just using the words there, I mean, they're really harsh words. You know, de- depraved and deceitful and wicked and unrighteous, right? But that's those are the words the Bible uses. So you read that, and the the difficulty is that that's not that's not what you see blatantly every day. I mean, most most of us in our day to day interactions, we see people who are unsafe people who are acting in honorable ways. I mean, I I left my wallet just two days ago. I met Pastor Matt up at uh, Tim Hortons up his way. Tell me about it. Uh, you know, I, I got to have a relative here to tell on me, right? <laughs> so I meet Pastor Matt, right? And uh, I actually don't have a wallet. I've got like this metal, it's got a clip, it's a money clip, but there's never any money in the clip. It just, it holds like five cards. And so I have, you know, a, an ATM card and my gas card and stuff like that. And then I've got my license right on the front, so I can just pull it out and show my license. So anyway, that's what it is. But it's got a credit card, it's got an ATM card, it's got my license, you know. And uh, so I get there, I sit down, I put my stuff down. Then Matt shows up and he goes, you know, we, we should sit over here. And he was right, we were spreading out calendar stuff, so we needed some room. And so I start moving my stuff over. Well, I had, I had that clip sitting on... Uh, the black bag that I carry around all the time. And uh, I left those there when we moved. And then when I left, I left them both there. I didn't realize it until the next day. Now, somebody could take that, right? 
I mean, for sure. I go back the next day, and I'm sweating it with my... And sure enough, they've got both the bag and the wallet. Uh, so somebody found that. Let's assume some unsaved person found it. You know, they could, they could use that for nefarious purposes if they wanted to. But that kind of thing happens, right? People do the right thing. So you read, on the one hand, Romans 1, Romans 3, and it's all this depravity and deceitfulness and unrighteousness and all of that, and then you see people doing the right thing. And so how do you put those together? And then add to that, that the Bible uses language like people are blind and lost. So maybe it's not as bad as Romans 1 and Romans 3 is, is making it. That's the way you can easily, that's what you can easily conclude. They're really just blind and lost, and all they need is some additional information and somebody to show them the way. But Romans 1 and Romans 3 are like, no, man, this is really deep. So how do you, how do you put that all, to, all together? Well, I'll just offer a, couple, a few suggestions on that so that, we're not, so that we have an accurate view of people, of humanity, from a scriptural standpoint. Understand that, you know, we're immersed too. Even though God has saved us, and even though hopefully we're progressively becoming more like Christ, which by definition means you're becoming separated from the world, less like the world and more like Jesus, even though that's presumably happening in our lives, we're still immersed in the world. And so our perspective is skewed. It's easy for us to see then people as better than they really are. Because we're immersed in it. You know, you're immersed in the media, watching TV, listening to stuff, and we become accustomed to things as if they should be the norm, as if they're okay. When if you were sitting, watching TV, or watching that movie, or reading that thing, or having that conversation, and the Lord himself were sitting there with you, I think we would all be shocked at how far we've come at drifting toward worldliness because we're immersed in it. And so part of the reason we don't see Romans 1 and Romans 3 is because we're, we're still part of the world. We're still, immersed, we're still immersed in it. And secondly, as I was saying, most of the time we don't see raw evil completely unmixed with any good. Most of the time we don't just see it in its raw state. What Paul's describing in Romans 1, Romans 3, is just this is at bottom, this is the way it is, absent any restraint upon the sinful nature of people. Absent that, that's what you got. So to put it another way, the reason we don't see raw evil is because God's grace (laughs) is extended even to the unsaved. And it's what theologians call God's common grace given to unsaved people that causes them not to be as bad as they otherwise would be. So you put both those together, I'm part of the whole scene, and I get kind of immersed in it, and therefore my view gets skewed. And the fact that God's common grace keeps people from being as bad. And so you read Romans 1, Romans 3, and it's like, wow, that's a blast you know, of cold water that I didn't expect because it's not really what I see all the time. And then add to that the language of lost and blind. And yeah, so what Zach said was uh, deliberate, being deliberately lost. 
Think about somebody who's addicted to whatever. (laughs) They're an addict. And think about you counseling an addict. How would you look at it, what they're doing and what's motivating them from a biblical perspective? I've had to do that. I've had to counsel people who are addicts, addicted to all kinds of different things. So as I try to size that up, given everything we're talking about, Romans 1, Romans 3, unrighteous, deceitful, depraved, and yet at the same time lost and blind. How do I put those together? Here's how. It's similar to what you said. The illustration that I've used for folks is this, that um, you know what we do is we're going, we're going along a road called life, and we have warning signs all over the place. Stay on this road. Don't go there. But we deliberately go there. It's like, I wonder what's down there. It can't be that bad. There's a, in fact, I saw a bunch of people going that way. <laughs> How bad can it be? So I get off the road. I go down this way. But I got the signs. And then once I'm off there, I got more signs. But, uh, and I think about it maybe. Some people might turn back, but many people blow through all the signs. And then beyond those signs where you've been warned, there are traps. You know, just like animal traps. You get entrapped. And now you're trapped. Now you've got this thing that has a hold of you. And it ain't easy for you to get free. Now notice, I think that combines both things that the Bible talks about. On the one hand, the personal culpability for taking the road and blowing through the signs. But having blown through the signs, I'm now entrapped. And what happens is we normally get then involved with somebody who's addicted after they're already in the trap. So now, and, and all they can say is, dude, I want out of this trap. But... And, and, it, and it can be done, and thank God it is done, but it isn't easy once you're entrapped. And when you see the language in Scripture of people that are lost and helpless and all of that, this is because we've deliberately blown through signs. And we've all gone, what is the language of Isaiah 53? Each of us has gone to his own what? His own way. All that We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Having done that now, you've got... So the, the lostness and the blindness and all of that comes as a result of the sinful willingness to blow through God's instructions. And then when we do that, you see, you see both of those. So I'm belaboring that because it's really, 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 really important for us to see humanity as it really is. Because if you don't have a clear understanding of the problem... You won't have an appreciation for and a clear understanding of the solution, which is the good news of the gospel. So that's the state of humanity apart from Christ. Now, what about the state of humanity in Christ? How would you describe that? Well, that's not in Christ. That's for everybody. That's yeah, common to everybody. It's because of Christ in the world. Right? It's true. 
true. But, but here we're talking about individuals who are in Christ right. and, I, and saved. As children of God, as children of God, we're given eternal life. So okay. that power is even, but as we are further sanctified, we should be less restrained by sin. Okay. So the state of humanity of, of people who are Christians, who are saved, who have been delivered, who have been rescued, you know, all of the terminology that Scripture uses, one of the things that's true of us is that the power of sin has been broken. It has been broken, according to Romans 6. So the power of sin has been broken. So I'm not enslaved to sin, as is the case with the person who's the unbeliever. So that's one aspect, very important aspect. What, what else? What about, uh, what about my relationship to God? <laughs> you know, outside of Christ, you're alienated from God. In Christ, by definition, you are reconciled to God. It's the language the Bible uses, that we're reconciled to God. And that has very practical effects on us. Um, I'm working with a brother who's whose childhood, man, unbelievable. Just unbelievable. How bad. Uh, I was saying this morning, every time I think I've heard it all, I then get another story, and, and I think, okay, now I've heard it all. But just, just horrible. So, but, you know, you think about somebody who is just abandoned, orphaned, like on their own. And... People outside of Christ are alienated from God. Now, they've alienated themselves, but nonetheless, they're on, they're on their own. Whereas when you're in Christ now, you're reconciled to God. You have a relationship with Him. You're on His side, not His enemy. So your position is radically different. You're reconciled to God. You're His child. Your experience is different as well because the power of sin has been broken by, by Christ. You're not enslaved to it. And that should have real-world effects on us. The fact that I'm God's child, I have that position, I'm not his enemy, I'm not alienated. And the fact that the power of sin has been broken, that should have real-life effects on us. And I'm just challenging you guys to think about that. It should have real-world, real-life effects on you and me. It means my life should be different than the average guy who's unsaved. Quite different. Radically different. All right. Anything else about it? Okay, good. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, think about the person who's outside of Christ. What am I here for? They got, and they, they can make it up. But you know why you're here. You know who made you. You know for what purpose he made you. So you have purpose and direction. Good. Okay. So the state of humanity in Christ is you now have the capacity to really love people. You know, that same passage, 2 Corinthians 5, says the love of Christ compels us. And then goes on to say, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
Very good. All right, look at number three. What's the condition of the heavenly powers opposed to God since the death and resurrection of Christ? So let's just do that first. So what's the deal with them? We're opposed to God, opposed to God since now the death and resurrection of Christ. Defeated. Yeah, good. Yeah, you are chosen to realize it. Say that again. Um, Defeated. Yeah, uh, the the heavenly powers. Yeah. yeah, defeated, for sure. And then, you know, so evil that you know you're defeated, <laughs> and you still go at it. I mean, that's the way the Bible presents Satan and his emissaries. You guys remember this scene where Jesus cast demons out of a man, and the demons talk to Jesus. And they say, have you come to destroy us before the appointed time? They know the deal. <laughs> they, they know who he is. They know he has power over them. And they say, have you come to destroy us? And then, and then Jesus sends these, these demons go into a, a herd of pigs. Remember that? Heard of swine. Is that why we like pork so much? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'll think of that now every time I have bacon, okay? <laughs> but the, the point is, these guys, they, they know. I, I made uh, just brief allusion to it in the sermon this morning about the kingdom as described in uh, Revel- Revelation, the thousand year kingdom. Christ is reigning, and yet you've got this weird situation where there are people who were saved during the tribulation period. Don't get lost in the weeds here. They enter the kingdom in natural bodies while the rest of us are in glorified bodies. So they have children, and those children then have sin natures. And so over a a thousand years, you get a lot of these people. So even in the kingdom, you've got these, then these unsaved people. And this is how it can be said then of the coming king that he's going to execute justice and all that. Well, who's he executing justice on if we're, if we're all perfect? <laughs> well, it's on these guys. But at the end it says, Satan is loosed for a season. And there's a rebellion against Jesus. Now, mind you, Jesus is physically on the throne. <laughs> he's here and they still try an insurrection against Jesus and a coup against Jesus. Of course, it's defeated. But I say all that just to say they know the deal. They know the gig is up. But they still keep, the evil is so intense that they still keep, keep coming. And in fact, maybe more intensely because you're in the, you're in, you know, the death throes, right? You know that. And so how does somebody react in that situation. That's the way the Bible depicts the current state of <clears throat> the demonic powers after the death and resurrection of Christ, which defeated them. So what will happen to them at his return? I've just alluded to it a little bit. You know, there's this final, this final attempt toward the end of the kingdom, but then the Bible tells us that they're cast into the, the lake of fire and uh, completely uh, defeated then. 
All right, number four, what did you learn in this issue about why God sent a son to die on the cross? There were a bunch of verses on that. They were pretty common verses. Romans 5, you know, God commends his love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3, 16. So why, I mean, the the answer that the authors are looking for there is, is love. Why did God send his son to die on the cross? Because of his love for humanity. And that's certainly a biblical and accurate answer. Just take it, just take it though back a step further. Um, the Bible speaks much of God's love as motivation for Him to send His Son. But what's God's ultimate motivation for everything? And what's His glory? The display of His character, and love is one of the important attributes of His character. So if you really want to step it back, you say, to answer four, why did God send his son? It's, it's to display his character. And one very important aspect of his character is indeed his love. But the sending of Christ on the cross didn't only display his love, it displayed his holiness. Right? Because the death of the perfect one, God the Son, was required in order to make a payment. And that's only true because God's completely holy. Otherwise, God could just say, you know, I get it, I understand. Everybody messes up. But God can't say that. <clears throat> God can't overlook sins. Not that he just doesn't overlook sin, he can't. And the reason he can't is because he's holy, which is an aspect of his character. So that's what's being displayed in everything God does. But in particular, when you look at the cross of Christ, you have a number of these attributes of God, of his character, that are being displayed. Yes, his love but also his holiness. You know, one that I'm always um, amazed at is God's sovereignty in the death of Christ. Here we are at Christmas, and, you know, the Bible says that God sent his son when the time had fully come, when the time was just right. Galatians 4.4 4 says that, Galatians 4.4. 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, that we might become children of God. So when the time had fully come, well, who's in control of the time and the circumstances and all that to make it just right? God is, and he's, he's orchestrating everything to make the time exactly right for God the Son to come to earth on this mission 2,000 years ago. So I just encourage you guys then, questions like number four, always step back and try to look at the large teaching in Scripture about God and God's purposes, and particularly with regard to God's glory in what he does. All right, let's discuss number five. Does Christ's redemptive power really liberate people from the effects of sin in the here and now? Or do they have to wait for heaven to experience that? Does it really liberate people? Sir? I'm going to give a long answer here, but I can't. <laughs> when I read this, the book that was published in 1980 called A Very Private Gentleman, adapted into a film in 2000 in America, 
antagonist Jack is a gunsmith, weaponsmith. Very difficult life. And when he's in a small village in Italy, running from people who desire to kill him, he becomes a priest. The Italian priest says to him, I cannot deny the existence of hell, Jack, because you live there now. Hmm. It's a place without love. Hmm. So, I read this question and I drew a parallel to that film. My consensus is that if we can feel the other side, the darkness, the cold, then certainly we can feel the opposite. We can feel the power. Because if we couldn't, it would all really be hopeless. Mm. And I'm sure that, you know, standing under the throne and, and right there in the glory of heaven is probably more Hmm. Hmm. And, and, and I get your point. I'm very good. So to, to take it a little farther, I say this from an atheist perspective. Once an atheist. But when I sin now, I feel really nauseous and sick. Hmm. <laughs> and so I translate that to. So, I'm going to translate what you said, and then you tell me if I'm wrong. And if, I, and, and if I've mistranslated, push back, because I don't want to miss. But what I hear Carl saying is, look, uh, when you're outside of Christ, as represented by this, uh, uh, this, this role that George Clooney played, uh, you feel that. <laughs> you feel the effects of that. You're, you're living in that. You feel it in one way or another. You experience that hell, so to speak, in one way or another. And your point is that when you're in Christ, it follows that you should experience that as well. That it should not be just, it's, it's not just a theological truth that people are unsaved. People feel the effects of being unsaved. They just don't know what that is. They're blind and they're lost. Deliberately so, but nonetheless, they experience it. Even when it looks like an unsaved person's got it all together, you know, there's still all these nagging doubts about why am I here and how can this really be so complex and just kind of all fall together, you know? There's all those nagging sorts of doubts. Uh, they're ethical doubts. How, how, on what basis do I know what's... Is there any such thing as absolutely right or wrong then? If there's no ultimate standard for that. They've got all kinds of those things. They've got all that agony. And then they've got all the junk that they've created in their own life and that people have created for them. They experience that. And Carl's point is exactly right. That the Bible absolutely teaches that our new position in Christ should result in a new experience of life. If we're not careful, we can so emphasize the positional stuff. I'm adopted into God's family. I've been justified. You know, that's the way God sees me. He's declared me righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. All that's true. It's all precious and wonderful. And it's all the basis for my experience. But the truth is, day in and day out, I should have a daily and different experience. 
in life because of the power of the redemptive power of Christ. So let that be a challenge to, to each of us. It should be real, and real in the sense of I experience that. Okay? Sir? Well, the Bible speaks of hope often. And, you know, hope in the Bible is not, you know, a wish that something might come true. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation based on the promises of God. That's what hope in the Bible is. So it is a, is a firm hope. But the person outside of Christ doesn't have that, right? And so uh, they, they uh, the, that's why first. First Thessalonians 4.13 says this, In the face of death, quote, we do not grieve as those who have no, what? No hope. Because what comes next? Well, we, we have a confident expectation of what comes next based on the promises of God. Therefore, we don't grieve as those on the other side who have this no hope. The only thing I'll add to that, Gene, is that this hopelessness is not just an emptiness. I, I, I can't, I'm going to drill this down probably a bunch of times in our time together. It's not just an emptiness, you know. In, in evangelical circles, you'll hear this sometimes, that, you know, everybody's got an empty place in their heart that only Christ can fill, okay? So the, the picture that you get is that people have been deprived. There's something they're missing rather than depraved. And those are quite different. And so you hear that kind of talk a lot. You know, now you, you didn't say that, but I just want to make clear that it's not just that people are empty inside. They're empty inside for a reason. <laughs> they expelled God. <laughs> it's not just that you're born with this hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill. That's, I've heard that a zillion times. No, I kicked God out. This was an active and deliberate choice that all people outside of Christ make. And so all the warning signs go off the track, and then you wind up where you, where you are. So if we're going to get an accurate view of the state of humanity, we need to see that sin is active. It's not passive. Sin is not something that's done to me. Sin is something I do. And then it creates all of these situations like Gene described. Then there's a hopelessness. Then there's, then there's a desire now to find meaning, but I'm going to find meaning my own way. And so you got people doing, pursuing it all their own way. Sir? Um, just the, I think the other ditch that we can fall into besides saying, well, this doesn't really apply to my everyday life, is saying, oh, my everyday life is going to be perfectly fine. Now. Oh, sure. And, yeah. and so that's kind of the word that I fixated on is the effects. Because to me, that means like, 
I'm freed from the consequences of sin, whether mine or others. Like it's not mm. going to have any effect or not much effect on me anymore. Mm. Like I'm somehow delivered from that. And, you know, we, we know that the battle, you know, the victory is ultimately won, but I was just thinking, like, it's, we have to be careful when we're talking to people about the mission that this doesn't mean that life is not going to be hard, that you're not going to get beaten, beaten up or ever be called on the carpet to account for what you did. That's good. Because we still have that. Uh, it's still part of us living in this world. And there are consequences from that are effects of sin that we still have to deal with now. And they're not yes. going to be gone until heaven. All yes. we are forgiven, yes. we don't have to worry about yes. our second death. Yes. Still- yes. Very good. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, you know, Zach is pointing out in question five there, does Christ's redemptive power really liberate people, but then from the effects of sin in the here and now? <clears throat> so the sin that I committed before I came to Christ or sin that I s- still struggle with in Christ? And there's still effects to that. And it may be that prior to coming to Christ, <laughs> I was involved in you know, any number of things maybe things that are now manifest in my family life, my family situation, those things don't go back because you come to Christ. There's still the effects of, of that. And so that all is only going to get rectified, as Aaron points out, then when Christ makes everything right in the end. So, yeah, thank you, Zach. Thanks, Aaron. Good. All right, number six, Colossians 1.13 describes conversion as a hostage rescue operation. Now again, I, I, th- I just beat it. I'll go move on. I'll just plug in, the, go off the path. Now you're trapped. Now you're a hostage, okay? So there were terrorists in the, those woods <laughs> that you wandered into. <laughs> and now they've taken you hostage. <laughs> okay? So it's not just that through no fault of my own, I found myself entrapped in this thing. Okay? But I am hostage and, and salvation is a deliverance, a rescue operation, according to Romans 13. So did you experience that? A sense of deliverance when you were saved? Sir? Not really a hostage, but I did feel deep remorse, and I knew I was living in sin, but I didn't care. I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't care. But what about your testimony then, you know, as... Your mom's witnessing to you as others are witnessing to you. I know Aaron's testimony. So. And, you know, then God works through this situation of having a Bible literally fall <laughs> in front of you. <laughs> having a Bible literally fall in front of him, right? So he's got all this other stuff going on of people praying for him and witnessing to him, but he's running from God. And then, you know, God chases you down and has this. And then when all of that happened, when you finally recognized, you know, this is my Savior, this is my God, I, I'm, I'm submitting myself to Him. Then, I mean, I know when you were running from God, you knew you were sinning and you didn't care. But when you were converted, did you experience a sense of deliverance? Hmm. Okay. Did you, I'm asking a personal question, but uh, you've told me a little bit about your, you know, your former life. Did your did your life change dramatically after that? I thought so. So you there there's a sense in which you were rescued. Don't see it as a rescue, but I guess so. Yeah. I mean you were going this way and God 
snatched you in effect. An about face. I mean, you know, here's here's Paul. You probably wouldn't describe what Paul had on the road to Damascus as a rescue, an intervention, <laughs> right? And so Paul is, you know, going one way, literally, on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. And Jesus intervenes. And he's going a different direction. Now, he goes back to Jerusalem to, you know, to say, hey, I've been saved. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> Prove it. So anybody else? Sense of deliverance when you're saved. Captive. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I just put that you have to let go and surrender. Yes. As a For me, my sense of deliverance, I feel. Sure. When I wasn't atheist, I wanted God to move me. When you were an atheist? Yes. That's what I wanted. To prove it to you? Yes. Now, if you will, come in little teeny tiny snippets mm-hmm. rather than one big mess. Gotcha. Perhaps God sends a humor. I don't know. <laughs> 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 That's good. I yeah. feel small changes. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't know how to explain that. I don't know. Just one explanation. Small snippets. One big wave. Hallelujah. I'm saved. Yes. You know, yes. That wasn't it for me. Yeah. You were declared righteous not that long ago, and now God is working to make you mm. more righteous. So but that's only had a short amount of time to, to start, so that's why I really think. Well, you know, I love, really like the Stockholm Syndrome thing. I might steal that sometime in a, in a sermon. That's really good. Well, that is. That's good because, you know, the cap, the captive begins to identify with the captor, and you... You know, that's what that is. You guys have heard of that. You know, so you're like, why didn't the person run away? Why didn't the, per-? the person starts to feel some empathy with the person who's got them in captivity? It's really in captivity. It's really weird, but that's that's what it is, and it's a real thing. And it's it's pro- it's pr- an accurate way of describing what happens as people are palling around, so to speak, with Satan <laughs> being led around in captivity by him. Uh, that there's an affinity. And the Bible teaches that. You know, our nature is compatible with our Father. The Bible calls Satan our Father. So we're in his family. You know, so there is really is an, an affinity with, with that. But therefore, you know, it, it makes sense that sometimes there'll be the dramatic Damascus Road or a Bible dropping from the rafters in the in the garage. But other times, it's bit by bit you're being released from that captivity. And I would say in my own experience, most often it's that, that more bit by bit. But please understand, that is still a rescue operation. Because that person who's got that Stockholm Syndrome, to be able to be broken out of that, even if it's piece by piece, that's a rescue. And even the first step out of that, is the beginning of 
a rescue. And so, no matter how it's happened, it is a rescue, but some are more dramatic than others. And most often, it's not the dramatic thing. We always highlight the dramatic testimony. You know, the person who had this life of sin and did all this stuff and killed this many people and dealt that many drugs, and, you know, then they come, which is marvelous. But for many, many of us, you know, in my case, I grew up in a Christian home. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes the fact that God could rescue me, given that I have every human reason to think that I was righteous. And God can rescue me from my own self-deception and my own self-righteousness. That's what he has to do for many people. And, that, and that's what he had to do for me. That I'm not okay in myself. You take, uh, you take Paul. Paul says in the Philippians, he gives his spiritual resume prior to coming to Christ. And he's got a sterling religious spiritual resume. And he says, all of that I consider as, as rubbish. But it was what was most important to him. God rescued him from, from dependence on that. So anybody else? A sense of deliverance when you say When, how old were you? You were in your 20s? 21. 21. Yeah. And a lot of illustrations you can use of this. You know, as, as I say, I've got that road. You go off the road. You're entrapped. You know, uh, hostage. But then the door is opened. But that doesn't mean you're on the the road you should have been on all along, right away. You know, now I'm, the door's opened, and now I'm making my way back, so to speak, to where I should have been all along. And depending on how far I got into the woods, it may take a while. It may take longer. Uh, Wendy would not mind me. In fact, I think she'd be happy to have her testimony used publicly. Wendy Mashinsky, many of you know her in our, in our church. Wendy got saved you know, as an adult, baptized in our church. When she uh, first heard the gospel, first time she heard the gospel was coming to the baptism of her um, brother-in-law and sister-in-law, Jim and Janet Sturgill, came to our church for a baptism. Uh, I give a short gospel message and she tells the story of being in the back laughing at this whole thing but God used a number of circumstances in her life to cause her to start to ask her brother-in-law and sister-in-law questions and one thing led to another she comes to she comes to Christ and she's given the the testimony publicly where she says actually her testimony is is also recorded on our website you can go listen to it I don't know if she says this in that recorded testimony, but she said it before. She says, 
My life, man, has had so many twists to it. Uh, the things that I have done and have been done have so twisted my life, it's like a pretzel. And now, by God's grace, I'm untwisting that pretzel. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, the way it is. Depending on, and depending on how far you've gotten in, how many twists are there? You know, how complicated is it? to kind of unravel that whole thing. And uh, it will take a lifetime for us to continue to become like Christ, of course, and then we still won't get there until we're glorified. But depending on the road we've gone on and how deep we've gone and all the things that we've done and the things that have happened, we all have different experiences of that. And so it may be more or less dramatic depending, but for most of us it's a step-by-step unraveling and getting back to where we should have been all the time. Sir? I think you can see that too as a believer, that redemptive process. I've been in my teens and all, snared and trapped. Yes. Yes. So even so, at a young age, you can, you know, you, presumably you're on the right path, but then you can find yourself being drawn off, right? But one difference is you're on your own, baby, when you're outside of Christ. And you can drift as far off of that path as you want to. Whereas if you're truly in Christ, you'll be tempted to, you'll even take steps off of that path. But God will bring you back. That's the day. You have a relationship with God, and he will. He will bring you back, says Scripture. That's a huge difference. But we still struggle with sin with that and, then, and the effects of that, right? You, were giving, you, know, you say, I was saved at 7 and all that, and I'm thinking, and you still got, managed to get wrapped up with Wayne Albright. <laughs> All right, take a look at number seven here. How does Kostenberger and O'Brien's article relate to the concept of the reign of God, which we looked at uh, two weeks ago? Now, you know, their article is just a page and a half. It's a summary, really, of a book that they wrote about the mission of God in the world. And so they're talking about God's mission and then how Christ's work fits into that. Did anybody get anything about how what they had to say relates to this concept of the reign of God? <laughs> yeah. Please, yeah, sure. Say the last part. Say the last one again. Um, if we... Um, if we recognize a deeper element in Christ, okay. our worship can then stand against opposing forces. Okay. Just as 
I can't remember which writer did the analogy of Christ. Making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore, right. our worship can too, if we take worship as the central piece of issue one. Okay. Yes. Good. Good. Zach, you, were you going to say no? No. Okay. I just said, I, that article, it brought up that a little bit, but it, that's one of the things I've been kind of wrestling through is as we adopt a gospel centered mindset and we look in the scripture, no matter where we are, for evidences of redemption and God's plan and his mission moving forward in people's lives, we I have to still be careful when I'm reading God's, reading the Word not to <clears throat> import stuff there that isn't necessarily the author's intent at that particular moment. Because sometimes his, you know, especially in the Old Testament, his intention at that moment was to talk about something related to perhaps the reign of God in that particular dispensation. Mm. And it's not wrong to, to make mention of, of other revelations, but that's getting off a little bit, but I, I do think that that rule of God, mm. the mission going forward, Him extending His rule in the hearts of people and gathering mm. up citizens for future kingdoms, really helpful to kind of just keep in mind. All right, so two weeks ago, God's reign, God's rule. We should be careful not to think of God's rule as a forced rule a forced reign on the hearts of his people. Think about it. Just this morning, I uh, mentioned Philippians 2. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And then, whether above the earth or on the earth, or what, what, under the earth. Now think about the people under the earth who are saying Jesus is Lord. His reign is being forced on them. They're being, through clenched teeth, as I said this morning, having to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But God is not satisfied with that. He could, he could just force his rule on us and just cower us into obedience and, and make us do what he says to do. But he's chosen not to do that. Now, so think about that. When we think about God's then his reign and his rule, we're not talking about brute force here. God has all power. He could exercise that brute force. He will exercise that brute force on some at the end, and they will have to, by brute force, have to, even though they don't want to. <laughs> but that's not what he does with his people, is it? I mean, he doesn't bring you into his kingdom and under his under his control uh, by, by force. Why doesn't he? So John says you can't force love. And God wants to be worshipped for who he is. So what did, what did Jesus say to the uh, Samaritan woman? Samaritan woman. God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we talk about this whole rain thing, see what, what Satan is looking for 
is allegiance. Worship. What does he what does he say to <clears throat> what does he say to Jesus when he tempts him? Luke four and Matthew four. Worship me. He says that to Jesus. So he's looking for the allegiance of humanity. He got that allegiance in Genesis three from our first parents. They decided to give their allegiance to the serpent rather than God. So God is extending his rule, yes, and his reign, but Christ has come on a mission to secure people who want to follow him because they love him and worship him. And and so I think that's a good way to think about then what we looked at two weeks ago in the reign of God, extending the reign of God. And now as it and now as it relates to the battle with opposing forces, those opposing forces and ultimately that opposing force, Satan, and all of his emissaries are looking to receive allegiance and worship from God's image bearers. You see this in Job, don't you? Job loves God and worships God. And Satan wants to prove that he really doesn't. He only worships you because you give him stuff and because you protect him. That was the challenge. That's what Satan says to God. And God says, you're on. And so Job is tested severely. And Job passed the test. Job worships and loves God because of who God is. So God reigns. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, he is all-powerful. Yes, he speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, and Job is like, man, this is more than I can deal with. But, but God reigns also in the sense that Job voluntarily submits himself to the beauty of who God is, and he loves him and he worships him. And so how does that relate then to Christ's mission? That's what Christ is coming to do. He's, he's moving people from one kingdom to another. From allegiance to one king, Satan, the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, that's what it calls him, 2 Corinthians, the god of this world. So Christ has come on a mission to move people from one kingdom to another. And I, I that's part of what they were saying then in that page-and-a-half article. This is what Christ's come to do. And he's done it by defeating Satan. Now, how has he defeated Satan? We haven't really gotten into that, even though that's a major part of this whole thing. So let's talk about it for a few minutes. So how did he defeat Satan? Well, remember the article by Stott? Uh, Stott had a couple of words in there I had to look up. Janine, Janine. Did you guys see that right like at the beginning of that article? It means like naive and simplistic. I've never seen that word in my life. And what, what's the word? Perusia or oh, Perusia. Well, that's Greek, yeah. Well, yeah, he's got Greek words in there, sure. That means the coming, return. It's, it's the second coming. <laughs> you couldn't find it, Perusia, yeah. But it's a Greek word, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's the return, yeah. So Greek words, but no, this was an English word. I'm like... What was it? Jejun, yeah. Yeah. 
It's like naive, simplistic. Yeah. We'll say that. <laughs> this, now, now, he lives in, or lived, he's dead now, he died a few years ago, but uh, lived in London. And so he's uh, British. And uh, he's actually an Anglican guy, but he's a brilliant scholar. He writes great books. And so he's got a great book on the cross of Christ and a number of things. But he, uh, he lays out Christ's mission there and how it was that Christ has defeated Satan. And he talks about the temptations that Christ went through as part of that. Do you remember reading that? So the way I've put that in my own preaching and teaching is, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. You see, if you notice, there's a real parallel between what the serpent did with Adam and Eve and what Satan did with Jesus. So, so Satan is trying to get Jesus to fail as the first Adam failed. If he can get that to happen, all is lost. But Jesus succeeded. And so in succeeding, he beats him at the game, forgive the language, but the game is to get, have allegiance and worship. And so he's trying to, he's got every subject, every person, every image bearer, he has them. They are in his clutches, they are giving their allegiance to him. And Jesus is the only hope that people are going to be rescued from that. And so he's trying to get Jesus to do that very thing, to worship him, to succumb to his temptation. But of course, Jesus does not succumb. And so he defeats Satan in that attempt to gain his allegiance, his worship. And because he does that now, he, he lives an absolutely righteous life so that he can die and defeat death. He can, Remember what death is about. The wages of sin is death. But now Jesus is qualified to give his life in death to pay for those who are dying and dead in sin. And so it's through that that Jesus defeats Satan because the war is about allegiance. The war is about worship. The war is about loving voluntarily. And then those who are in Christ share the victory that Christ achieved. He did it for us. And in Romans 5, Romans 5 parallels the work of the first Adam and the work of the second Adam, Christ. As in Adam, you guys remember what it says? As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. All of those who are in Adam, that would be everybody, <laughs> die because they're related to the first Adam who voluntarily gave his allegiance to Satan, his worship to Satan. And so everybody else who's attached to him does that. But now everybody who's attached to Jesus has the victory that Jesus achieved over Satan. And that was done on the cross because the cross is the culmination, the culmination of his mission. The cross doesn't matter if Jesus does not 
resist the temptation of Satan. The cross does no good. If Christ doesn't live an absolutely perfect life, the cross does not matter. But he did, and in that obedience throughout his entire life, he became obedient even unto death. Death on a cross, Philippians 2. And Satan looks at all this and goes, Oh, baby, we have got one here, a member of the human race, born of a woman, who I could not defeat, whose allegiance I could not gain, whose worship I could not receive. And now all who are attached to him share in that victory. That's the way we've got to view it. Which brings you to number eight, then. What implications does this have for evangelism and missions? That's what, that's what our mission is about, then. To see people. One author says it this way. Evangelism exists where worship does not. Evangelism exists where worship doesn't. You know, to put it another way, God desires and deserves to have worship of him everywhere by everyone. And as long as there are people who don't worship God, as long as there are people who are still giving their allegiance and their worship to Satan, who are in his kingdom, then there's a need for this rescue mission, evangelism, to see people move from the one kingdom to the other. So that's what the mission is for our evangelism. That's the, that's the objective of our evangelism, is to see people move from the one to the other. But it has other implications as well then, related to that. It is not, I can't say this strongly enough, we'll be done in a few minutes, I've got five more minutes. I can't emphasize this strongly enough. Salvation is not fire insurance, that. You see, it's not just we don't want you to go to hell. The rescue is being rescued from one kingdom and placed into another. So it's not just about what will happen to you if you don't, as important as that is. It's about who deserves and desires your love and worship and allegiance. And that'll affect the way we go about evangelism then, if we see it that way. We won't just tell people, hey, look, when you die, you'll go to hell if you don't receive Jesus. That's true. But that's really leaving Jesus out of the picture, other than Jesus is the insurance policy. But Jesus is not the objective. Jesus is the tool in that approach. The objective is for you. The objective is to keep you from landing in a bad spot. Again, I'm not saying that's unimportant. It's just not the most important. What's most important is the fact that God desires and deserves to be worshipped by his creatures. And prior to coming to Christ, you ain't worshiping him. And, and Christ has made a way for you to do that. 
He can free you from your allegiance to Satan and the kingdom of Satan and so on. And so we want to see people bow to the lordship of Christ. We want to see people voluntarily, because they've come to love him, worship Christ. So that'll affect the way we preach, the way we teach, the way we give the gospel to to people. Have you guys seen evangelistic techniques that do the fire escape, fire insurance kind of an approach? Okay. You know, and look, we're we're talking about some heavy stuff here, okay? And you should not, nor do you need to give all of that <laughs> to some poor unsuspecting soul that you're trying to <laughs> It's like, man, you should hear what we were talking about at our Leadership Institute thing. I mean, there's this battle going on. It's, you know, Christ defeated Satan and led him captive and all the stuff. They're going to go, what? You know, they, they are feeling the effects of sin in their lives. And you're trying to give them the answer to sin, and they'll, they'll grow in their understanding of that just as we're all growing in our understanding of it. Okay? So you don't need to give them all that, but you do need to, as you present the gospel to people, as you evangelize them, you do need to present God as the key issue. And our relationship with God is the key issue. And, and the fact that we need to follow God with our lives. And so when I do my little quick thing at the end of the sermon a lot of times, you know, I'm trying to quickly summarize the gospel. But one of the things that's really essential in that presentation is that third point where it says repent. God, I'm going to go your way, not my way. Because that's giving my allegiance to you, not to me. I'm going to follow your agenda, not my agenda. So, you know, however we package it, however we present the gospel, we have to make God the central issue and God's agenda the central issue. And since the war is all about that, it's about worship and allegiance and one kingdom versus another kingdom, then what implications does it have? It should affect the way we present the gospel to people. Okay? All right. Any other thoughts? Have I successfully beaten everybody up and uh, filibustered long enough? (laughs) No, really, any comments? All right. If not, by the time we get to issue six, did you guys read that in... uh, was it form a response or is it step six? I can't. Uh, that talks about the chart. No, I want. I'm looking for. There's in in issue six. That's right. Is that in step four? Form a response. It's in six. No, it's in it's in issue six. It's in step four. But then in issue six is when you'll pull it all together, right? So in, is it four, step four? I just wanted to make, it's in step four, okay? But I just want to remind you of that because each week now, as we go through these, you're putting together a line or two of what would go into a mission statement for the church in light of what we've learned. Then by the time we get to issue six, we should be able to pull that together and put together a full mission statement, okay? So we'll do issue three and we'll meet together next week. Okay. All right. Thanks guys.